0: When we think of the wealth of colonial America and and ultimately the United States, you cannot point to a more primary source than slavery. relationship and had a child. When her new master died in 1655, William Greenstead and Elizabeth Key sued for the freedom of Elizabeth Key as well as their newborn child, and they won. They they won their case, and they won their case because Elizabeth Key made the case that her father was free and she was a Christian. And in British law, and Virginia, in 1655, uh, was a British colony. In British law, you could not enslave a Christian, and the status of the child was derived from the father. And, and so again, Elizabeth Key was like, my father is free, and I'm a Christian, so I should be free. And by 1657, that case had been resolved, and she, she, she won her freedom and so other enslaved africans who were also christian and their fathers were white they were the product of of a white man and an african woman also began suing for their freedom so by the 1660s virginia leaders who were slaveholders began to recognize that more and more enslaved Africans were basically winning their freedom. And so they had to change the laws in order to keep these people enslaved. These people who slaveholders had invested a tremendous amount of money in, and the new laws stated that the status of the child derived from the mother, and that Christians, enslaved Christians, could not basically sue for their freedom on the basis of their new Christianity. And so that was able to pause or stop these freedom seeks. These new laws in the sixteen sixties showed just how critical the maintenance of keeping people, black people, enslaved was to the lifeblood of of Virginia, a colony that was seeking to grow its wealth by planting tobacco, which was the major product at the time in colonial Virginia, a product that was sweeping England into Western Europe in its popularity. And in order to do so, they needed a pretty steady labor force. And that steady labor force was increasingly enslaved Africans who were permanently enslaved in contrast to white indentured servants who in a few years could basically become free.
1: Don't put it in that, Judge. 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 Total judging, but a total 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 Tonkin, 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 Tonkin,
2: didn't play 41 minutes. I guess we'll have to go to Democracy Now! on YouTube to get the 41-minute version. The interview of Ibram X. Kendi on anti-racism, anti-capitalism, and the eugenics. Democracy Now. Well, we'll keep moving it, keep it moving and see if we learn more from Ibrahim on Democracy Now because the the arrows allow us to keep playing him. Let's we listen. think of the
0: wealth of colonial America and ultimately the United States, you cannot point to a more primary source than slavery. Legislator from Virginia and an unnamed, probably enslaved African woman. Before Thomas Key died, uh, he willed that his daughter, Elizabeth Key, would be freed at 15 years old. Her new master decided to defy uh, the wishes of, of Thomas Key and Key kept her enslaved. On a plantation, she actually met this white indentured servant who was around her age by the name of William Greenstead who had some legal training and the two of them developed a romantic relationship and had a child. When her new master died in 1655, William Greenstead and Elizabeth Key sued for the freedom of Elizabeth Key as well as their newborn child and they won. They, they won their case and, and they won their case because Elizabeth Key made the case that her father was free, and she was a Christian. And in British law, in Virginia, in 1655, it was, awesome. uh, was a, a British things colony. Things. colony. And
1: British
3: Slavery was woven into the fabric of the new United States from the very beginning. But it undergoes a transformation beginning in the 1790s with
2: the rise of We're listening to historian Adam Rothman. R O T H M A N. Historian Adam Rothman. Key concept to slavery and slavery. Slavery and the slave trade were central to the development and growth of the colonial economies and what is now the United States. Historian Adam Rothman traces how the labor of enslaved people In an area just outside New Orleans, rippled across the globe to create wealth for the growing nation.
3: As of the slave economy of the 19th century it has to do with the territorial expansion of the United States both through diplomacy and the expulsion of indigenous communities it has to do with the transfer of labor to these new plantation areas through the slave trade it also has to do with the migration of planters and capital to these new regions. So one family that I think illustrates that reality is the Palfrey family. John Palfrey was a Boston merchant, a little bit down on his luck. Just after the Louisiana purchase, he sees a whole new field for profit in these new lands acquired by the United States. So he moves to New Orleans with four of his sons, and they establish a cotton plantation in a remote frontier region of Louisiana known as Atacapa. So they purchase land. Palfrey also purchases 21 people, men, women, and children, who he transplants to this new land in Atacapa. They turn a piece of wilderness, really, into a cotton plantation. And it's the labor, it's the hands, the arms, the muscle, the know-how of those enslaved men, women, and children that make that land profitable. Among the Palfrey Family Papers is a really remarkable document that sheds light on the workings of the cotton plantation. It's a tally of the, um, the weight of cotton that was picked by each enslaved person on the Palfrey plantation for a year, day by day. We know from that record that about 40% of the cotton that was picked was picked by children. Another 40% was picked by women. So the vast majority of the cotton picked on Palfrey's plantation was picked by women and children. But to really understand the the nature of the cotton economy of the early 19th century, we have to follow that cotton from the Palfrey plantation to, to where it ended up because the plantation on the remote Louisiana frontier was a part of a vast southern national and even international economy one of the first global economies of the modern era so that cotton picked by those women and children will be hauled to New Orleans in New Orleans bales of cotton would be uh, put on ocean-going vessels those ships would then transported to New York or Boston, or even more likely to Liverpool, where that cotton would then supply the raw material that uh, fueled probably the greatest industrial interest of the first half of the 19th century: cotton textile manufacturing. It was cotton textiles that made the the industrial revolution go, and that cotton came from the Deep South. So it'd be woven into yarn, the yarn into fabric, the fabric into clothes, and those clothes would then be sold across the world, really. The profits that are made off of the backs of slaves in the cotton kingdom, some of it ends up flowing to the hands of cotton brokers in New York, to the insurance companies that are beginning to insure the lives of slaves against death and disease. The profits are going to the hands of the the shipping companies that are carrying the cotton from New Orleans to New York and to Liverpool. So there are these multiplier effects of slave labor that end up funneling profits into the coffers of of Northern and European business as well.
2: Moving right along, key concept three protections for slavery were embedded in the founding documents. Enslavers dominated the federal government, Supreme Court, and Senate from 1787 through 1860. Scholar Annette Gordon Reed explores how the Constitution, written when slavery was seen as a, quote, dying institution, end quote, actually protected the institution and allowed slavers to aggressively defend its expansion key concept number three scholar Annette Gordon Reed speaking thank you for listening
4: one of the most difficult things for people to understand is how it could be that a nation that saw itself as breaking away from tyranny and oppression could oppress other people, could in fact hold many, many people in bondage. How do you reconcile those two things? We think of Thomas Jefferson as the author of the American Creed, the Declaration of Independence, talking about the equality of all mankind and the right to pursue happiness. But even he was conservative on the point of actually effectuating a change in slavery. So Jefferson's understanding about the Declaration, the universal principles, was something he thought would come later on in the American experiment rather than something that would be immediate. And that's something that's very difficult for us to understand because we made the choice and we understand that slavery wasn't evil and it's an evil that should have been eradicated as quickly as possible, but that was not the perspective at the time, and that was not Jefferson's perspective at the time. When the framers were coming together, arguing about how to create the United States of America, the southerners were not gonna come into the Union unless they had an assurance that their interest in human property would be protected. So the Constitution of the United States, and some people would say in contravention of the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, protected slavery. Many of the American revolutionaries thought that slavery was a dying institution. The compromise was to have it where it existed, and that eventually, at some point, slavery would die out. Now, people's understanding about dying out could extend over decades or centuries. But the idea was that eventually things would change. As it becomes clear that slavery is not dying, That in fact the institution is becoming more and more prosperous, slave prices are going up, and the revolutionary generation, many people in the deep South, South Carolina in particular, had already come to the notion that slavery was integral to their lives, not just because of the economic factors, but because slavery was a system of control. There were many more blacks in South Carolina whites so they're thinking about economics but they're also thinking about their own protection as slave prices began to grow as the country begins to move west they become much more wedded to the idea of slavery slavery becomes expansionist and the northerners who had agreed to come into the union thinking that it was going to be in this one place and that it would eventually die become alarmed as they began to make noises about their dissatisfaction with this the southerners point to the constitution and say this is the deal we made we came in with the understanding that we'd be able to keep our slaves and the north says no we thought you would keep your slaves but in the places where it was this expansionist notion changes the entire nature of the country what they call the slave power that america would not be a free nation it would be a nation that was supported and lived on slavery Northerners who had made a choice against that with their gradual emancipation statutes in the immediate aftermath of the revolution would be pulled along with all of this. So the South becomes much more aggressive as the revolutionary generation gives way to the generation that sees slavery not as a necessary evil, but as a positive good. And that's a big switch to go from saying, all right, this is something that we have, It's evil and eventually go away to people saying, no, the natural state of African people in particular is to be enslaved and it is God's choice for us to do so and to become aggressive about it. So the South begins to look at the Constitution and make this a matter of a constitutional argument that you agreed to let us do this and you cannot change the deal that we made.
2: Hmm. Key concept for, quote, Slavery was an institution of power, end quote. Designed to create profit for the enslavers and break the will of the enslaved and was a relentless quest for profit abetted by racism. We will listen to historian Dana Ramey Berry describes the cell of an infant named Rachel to explore how enslaved people were commodified. Thank you for listening.
5: In 1854, an enslaved infant named Rachel was brought to an auction block in the center of town. An enslaved man that was in his middle ages took her to this auction block. Rachel was about one years old and she was for sale. took Rachel to be sold at noon which was the time of day that most enslaved people were sold on the courthouse steps in the center of town a visitor from the north a minister by the name of Nehemiah Adams who happened to be visiting the south witnessed this scene and was puzzled by what he saw Nehemiah Adams walked up to the enslaved man and asked him what he was doing there and he said master she's here to be sold he asked the enslaved man where are her parents? They know their daughter was being sold. Hmm. Where is her mother? Was she still nursing? Adams also asked the gentleman, how do you feel about this? And he said, I'm just following the master's orders. He actually decided not to stick around for the sale because he couldn't witness this horrific event. So he left. He later found out that that afternoon, little Rachel was sold for $140. Hmm. Rachel's story is not unusual. When we look at the history of slavery, we've learned recently that enslaved children were often separated from their parents at very young ages. From infancy to adolescence, enslaved children were taken from their parents and sold for their owners to make profit. Rachel was being sold that day because her enslaver had a debt, but he had brokered the deal to sell her before she was born. So before she was even brought into this world, there there was a deal that was made that was bartered on her life. Parents had to teach their children that they were both people and commodities. By the age of five, most enslaved children understood that they were considered a piece of property by their enslavers, although they were children who had loving parents and family members who valued them for their personhood as well but they had to be prepared because their parents knew that they could be taken from them like Rachel was taken from her mother. So as Rachel aged, particularly young girls had to worry about their valuation changing around the time when they were able to give birth. Why is that important? Because giving birth meant that their enslavers were gaining an extra laborer without having to purchase them particularly between the ages of 18 and 24 years of age, that was when she probably had the highest value. Her offspring, if she gave birth to children, would bring value to a plantation community. Her owner would not have to go out and purchase somebody because Rachel's babies would then be raised to also be enslaved, just like Rachel. But this story is really significant for us to understand slavery and to understand the institution from the perspective of prophets. Enslaved people of all ages represented a monetary value. They utilized these enslaved bodies to settle debts, to cover mortgages, to serve as deeds for gifts. So enslaved people, enslaved children, enslaved infants, just like Rachel, were sold to settle other people's business.
2: bear witness that actually happened in our family my cousin was talking about this the other day he was saying how our great my great grandmother, his grandmother was one of six children six or seven children produced by uh, Mr enslaver I'll leave his name out a um, Scottish man and a pure African woman he actually gave the gave my great-grandmother Hattie and her siblings and their mother his family name he had a European Scottish family with on at the same time with his name, but he had this extra family with my great grandmother's mother. And there were two boys. At least two or more boys. And I recall my cousin saying there were. That our great grandmother had six siblings. So there was. If he was. Not including her, then there would be seven with him if he was including her. Then the the, uh, enslaver had at least six or more with a pure African lady. And this didn't, this, I mean, this was nothing unusual or shocking. You heard it there. It happened like clockwork. Moving right along, key concept number five. Enslaved people resisted the efforts of their enslavers to reduce them to commodities in both revolutionary and everyday ways. Historian Tara Hunter discusses Henry Box Brown's escape from slavery and his work as an abolitionist. Thank you for listening.
6: If you can imagine... Um, Slave owners having full control over human beings. You could also imagine the difficulty that they might have in being able to maintain that control 24 hours a day, every day of the week, every month of the year. And so enslaved people found ways, both large and small, to basically avert the will of their masters. was born in Louisa County Virginia around 1815 and both of his parents were enslaved one of the things that's quite striking as he tells the story of his life is how his mother started to prepare him very early for what could possibly happen to him um, what could happen to the family in terms of being separated and those lessons were really seared into his mind quite early by the age of 15 that moment actually came to pass where Henry Box Brown, at the time it was called Henry, um, was basically sold away from his parents and from his siblings, and he never saw them again. He was sold to Richmond, Virginia, and he worked in a tobacco factory. He met his wife Nancy in Richmond, and they became friends, and he said that their friendship turned into mutual love. And they both wanted to get married, but they also had to get the consent of their slave owners, their respective slave owners, which they did. The slave owner of Nancy basically promised Henry that he would keep her um, nearby so that he would never sell her from Henry. But that promise didn't pan out. Within 12 years of their marriage, they faced the ultimate threat. Nancy and the children were taken away while he was at work. He discovered that they were taken to the local jail, that they were being auctioned off, and they were eventually sold to a slave owner in North Carolina. That was, of course, the the moment that they most dreaded. He was able to see his his kids and his wife one last time. He did go to the jail, and it's a very um, distressing scene as he depicts it in his narrative because his kids are crying out for him to help. He's unable to do anything and he's literally holding on to his wife's hand, walking beside the wagon for like four miles until he's forced to part and never see her again. It's very difficult for Henry to imagine how to go on. Like, what should he do next? How should he live his life? His wife and his children have been taken away from him. And he has this vision of essentially running away. He comes up with the idea of mailing himself in a box to Philadelphia. He enlists the help of various friends and people in the community who are willing to help. He's a very large man. He weighs 200 pounds. He's 5 feet, 8 inches tall. He is, he basically crams himself inside of a box and mails himself to Philadelphia. Through a very tumultuous physical journey, his box goes from wagon to steamboat to train. He eventually arrives in Philadelphia 27 hours later. Then He is met in Philadelphia by several members of the local abolitionist community. And from there, he becomes an activist in the abolitionist circuit. He leaves Philadelphia pretty quickly, moves on to New York, to Boston, to other cities throughout the Northern states. He's giving speeches, public addresses, essentially. He has a whole performance piece making the case that slavery is morally wrong and should be abolished. The thing that we most remember most frequently is his escape. But I think it's important for us to remember what was behind that that act what led him to that act And so family was very central to his his ambitions to his um, desire for freedom, his his desire to actually become a part of a larger movement to to end slavery. And so I think we need to remember, what enslaved people went through, what they were willing to risk for their families to keep their families together, and and also how they suffered. Slaveholders often perpetuated stereotypes about enslaved people um, with respect to um, ideas about their capacities to love, their abilities to create emotional bonds, and sustain those emotional bonds. So marriage was one way that enslaved people challenged those stereotypes because these were bonds that actually were very important to them. They proved that emotional connections, companionship, love, affection, were central to their, their sense of identity, their sense of belonging, and to their sense of what it meant to be human beings.
2: Just gets better. Key concept number six the experience of slavery varied depending on time, location, crop, labor performed, size of slave holding, and Gender. We're listening to historian Edward L. Ayers, A Y E R S, describes how the age and gender of enslaved people, along with the labor needs in different parts of the country, affected the domestic. Slave trade. Thank you for listening.
7: You know, sometimes people imagine that slavery was static, that people were just trapped in one place. Well, they were when they were on a particular farm or plantation, but in between, there was so much movement. remarkable letter, the only one that I've seen, of a person caught in the middle of this slave trade. Maria Perkins, she writes it from Charlottesville, Virginia in the 1850s, and she sends it to her husband, Richard, saying that she and their child were up for sale, and that another child of theirs, named Albert, had already been sold to a trader. And this letter gives us remarkable insight into an alarmingly distressingly common scene in the antebellum South. The slave trade moved at widely varying velocities. It was at its peak in the 1830s and again in the 1850s. The slave trade accelerated when the price for cotton in particular was high and people who owned slaves, who owned land, who ran plantations would go into debt to buy more enslaved people thinking that this would be their chance to make a lot of money. So the great paradox or the tragedy is the more the South prospered, the more the enslaved people of the South suffered. So this letter from Maria Perkins to her husband, telling about the selling of their son, Albert. More often than not, the people bought and sold were teenagers. And as soon as they were capable of performing heavy labor, or as soon as they were capable of bearing children, it's when they were at the greatest risk of being sold. So Albert could have found himself taken to the booming cotton plantations of Mississippi or Arkansas or Texas. Or if he was particularly unfortunate to the sugar plantations of Louisiana. I say particularly unfortunate because the mortality rate on those sugar plantations was so extraordinarily high. Now, Maria says that she and the other child are for sale too. This is not uncommon. What you would find is that smaller planters, people who claim to own just one or two people, would often buy women. Partly because women were useful in the house as well as in the field, but also because women could allow the property investment to grow. If a young woman had a young child, chances are that she could have another young child, and that would be an even better investment. So what we're seeing is that families are being pulled apart by gender. Young men like Albert are being sent to Louisiana where as many as 90% of the people they bought were males, whereas the majority of the farms and plantations in the South that were smaller were more likely to buy women. So not only did you have the slave trade separating old from young, children from parents, but you also found the slave trade separating men from women, husbands from wives. The other thing the letter tells us, Heartbreaking way is that even though they have no control over their futures, she ends the letter by saying, I am and will always be your kind wife, Maria. And that's the only moment that they appear in history. We don't know what happens to any of them, but what we do know is what happened to them happened to a million people. There's a million people moved from the eastern south to the western south over the antebellum period if you add up all the sales sort of locally it's two million and what this means is if you're a man or a woman you face different kinds of odds if you're young or you're old you face different kinds of odds if you live in one kind of plantation district growing tobacco or wheat you're in a different one than one that grows cotton and sugar so slavery is not a static institution sometimes people imagine that slavery was simple but it was really complicated and very mobile. As a matter of fact, the mobility of enslaved people is one of the defining facts of American slavery. Constantly shifting to the west, constantly shifting to the plantation districts, but also swirling around wherever people happened to be. Slavery had one commonality no matter where it was and what people grew on any day your family could be taken apart. On any day, your children could be sold away from you. On any day, you could find your mother or your
1: father gone.
2: Or in the case of the great-grandmother that I just mentioned that was the child of the enslaver. She had my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dad's father. She had him at age 13. Yes. She was 13 when my grandpa was born. So that lets you know what kind of system was going on. (coughs) And her first husband, who was murdered, um, in those days, they were told, that the death was by suicide to avoid paying the insurance claims to the people of color to keep them economically depressed. You see, and speaking with my cousin the other day, he did not even know how Her husband, his grandfather, and my great-grandfather had passed away because his wife would only say to the children, my grandfather, his two brothers, and my aunt May, they were only told that uh, he passed away. He's, he went away. And so I was surprised to hear it, and I told him that my dad and mom gave us the article from the newspaper to let us know how my dad's grandfather, my great-grandfather, was murdered. There was no one in the vicinity but the police. It was a clean, through and through bullet straight through the back of the head, through the front of the head, leaving the skull intact. So the coroner said, no way could it ever be suicide unless the skull would have shattered completely. In the case of someone shooting themselves at point-blank range through the head, the skull would shatter completely. Anything else would defy reason, logic, physics, chemistry, every science known and unknown. But like the police do still today. Uh, He was disposable and dispatched. And the police report simply said suicide. I'm sure it still does. Moving to key concept number seven slavery was the central cause of the Central War. Scholar Christy Coleman discusses the importance of slavery to the economies of southern and northern states, its central role in leading to Civil War and ensuing myths about that role. Thank you for listening.
8: The central cause of the American Civil War was slavery. People who lived during the time had no question about what the central cause was. So only after the war, during the remembrance periods and the memorial periods and the memoir period, did people start looking for another uh, reason, another example. I work at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and. Frequently, people who come through the door, come through the door with a lot of questions. And it's always about, what is the Civil War about? At the eve of the American Civil War, the states that will eventually make up the Confederate States of America, combined, have the sixth largest economy in the world. What is at the core of these states' economies? Slavery. It is the largest enterprise. It is where the greatest amount of wealth is held is in human beings and the products that are produced by them. So they have no reason to think that they cannot support themselves. They have no reason to think that they cannot have a nation that at its cornerstone is these two extremely important ideas to them. And that was number one, slavery was the natural position for Africans. And number two, that white folks were superior, and they were willing to build a nation on those two cornerstone concepts, and they did. When you look at all of the secession documents that were put forth, and the proclamations and the resolutions, they are very clear that slavery is central to, quote, our way of life that there is a feeling that the election of Abraham Lincoln and the rise of this new Republican Party was a threat to that. Slavery is not just an agrarian system. Slavery is being used in factories. It's being used in homes. It's being used in commercial businesses. And of course, it's being used in fields of varying types. At the time, especially in the South, the key to gaining wealth often was through the institution of slavery so the american dream was as much about getting land and then having slaves to work it that's where people saw their path to greater wealth and opportunity for themselves and their families creating generational wealth and this is a society that does elevate white people simply by being white of black people or any other person of color that was around at the time. It is a system where one aspires to having that level of wealth and power and control that slaveholders had. While slavery definitely existed in some northern states, the difference is many of those northern economies were not solely based on slavery. They tended to have a much more mixed economic model. The Confederacy absolutely went to war to preserve the institution of slavery. This is what they meant by preserving our way of life. Hmm. The northern states, however, they don't go to war to end slavery. They go to war to preserve the United States as a whole unit. It is not until later, after 1863 that the American civil war becomes a war for freedom.
2: Can you say make America greater again? That's the modern day interpretation of the position of the South in this scenario that Miss Coleman, Christy Coleman, just narrated. Next, we have key concept eight slavery shaped the fundamental beliefs of Americans about race and whiteness and white supremacy was both a product and legacy of slavery. Historian Martha Jones traces the development of racist ideals about people of African descent from the colonial period through the early 19th century. Let us listen to historian Martha Jones.
9: We ask a question about where the origins of white supremacy where the origins of racism, they are very much in the founding of the nation itself in our earliest stories. Slavery and race in North America grow up together. Part of what colonial lawmakers are deeply invested in is creating categories, boxes, and keeping people separate from one another as a tactic to then organize society, subject some people to wholesale exclusion. A story is going to be told about Africans as particularly suited to do the kinds of agricultural labor that colonial officials imagine will bring prosperity, the production, for example, of tobacco. They're telling those stories and developing these ideas because they believe it's an effective technique. It might be an effective technique for making the colony an economically productive enterprise. That's all racism is, is a set of ideas, wrong ideas, but powerful ideas about why people of African descent are especially suited to do the work. Out of the colonial period, out of the American Revolution, there emerges a question. Slavery might end. It might not end for some years, perhaps some decades, but it appears that slavery is going to end certainly in the North and perhaps throughout the country over time. It's one observation. And the second observation is that as slavery comes to an end slowly and gradually, um, there will emerge communities of free people of color who are going to build institutions and families, become part of the economic fabric of life in these cities. What to do if you have a growing community of free people of color, um, and yet your vision is one of a white man's country? Enter colonizationists. And what colonizationists propose is that they will raise money, they will found a colony in West Africa that comes to be called Liberia, and they will, by the offering up of resources, they will try and persuade free people of color to leave the country. This is a movement that gets formalized in the 18-teens. The American Colonization Society gives a kind of institutional home to colonizationist ideas, colonization becomes the most popular political movement of the early 19th century. Ordinary Americans sign on to this idea that the future of the country is governed by, dominated by, run by white Americans, and free African Americans have no future. There's only probably less than 10,000 people of African descent who even seriously entertain the notion of colonization, no less board a ship for a place like Liberia. The numbers are small, but for thinking about the long history of white supremacy, what we have to appreciate is that even as people of African descent remain in place, they live in a world where the majority of white people around them have signed on to a political movement that says they shouldn't be there that is committed to white supremacy whether people of African descent are literally removed or whether they remain under subordinated circumstances this is a world in which colonization has given everybody a language um, an organization a political movement um, around which white supremacy as we know it coalesces
2: That was historian Martha Jones. Moving on to key concept number nine. Enslaved and freed people worked to maintain cultural traditions while building new ones that sustain communities and impact the larger world. Historian Ibram X. Kendi discusses how the foodways and music of enslaved Africans helped shape American culture as we know it today.
0: African-Americans, despite the difficult conditions they have historically faced in this country, have been able to create culture. Wherever sort of people exist in this world... And even no matter how hard their conditions are, whether those, those conditions are enslavement or segregation, people are going to create culture. Whether that culture is forms of worship, whether that culture is food, whether that culture is music, whether that culture is philosophy. And in creating culture, uh, creating African-American culture, they were literally creating American culture. Many of the staples within soul food are are, are food products that emerged during the enslavement era. One of the more obvious examples is pigs. And typically the masters took the most popular sort of parts of the pig, the the parts that make up bacon and ham and others, and they typically left enslaved people with the, quote, scraps. And so those scraps were things like pig feet or particular bones. And many of the vegetable dishes within soul food are made with what's called ham hock. Collard greens are typically made with ham hock. It's something that many African-American children came up on. And, and so these food products, like soul food in general, really are products that, that emerged during the enslavement era. And, and over the years, African-Americans and even non-African-American cooks refined these foods, and they became a uniquely American form of cuisine that many Americans, black and non-black, enjoy. During the enslavement era, as you would imagine, it's, it's very difficult for any human being to labor from, from sunup to sundown. And so one of the ways in which enslaved Africans figured out to sort of pass the time and even create a rhythm to their work or even communicate sort of messages messages of of freedom were through music were through song, were through what became known as spirituals and so enslaved Africans somewhat taking from biblical sort of references developed all of these songs and these spirituals did not die off with the death of slavery in in 1865. They only transformed. Transformed into the genre of ragtime. Transformed again into the genre of the blues. Transformed again into jazz, which of course is is well known as as the first great American form of music. And they transformed again really into hip hop, which is the most popular musical genre. So when you look at hip hop, and and its ancestors its ancestors are jazz its ancestors are the blues its ancestors are ragtime its 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 ancestors are rooted in slavery with with the spirituals america uh, unlike other countries is a place where many different groups of people have came and had their own cultures and redeveloped their cultures here in the united states which really became part of this sort of larger fabric which we know as american culture and that fabric that fabric of american culture uh, cannot exist and does not exist without the crucial contributions of of african-americans and, and african-american culture
1: hmm
2: Concept 10, and we're done. By knowing how to read and interpret the sources that tell the story of American slavery, we gain insight into some of what enslaving and enslaved Americans aspire to. Created Thought and Desired. Scholar Annette Gordon-Reed discusses the challenges of using texts created by enslavers to understand the lives of enslaved people. Thank you for listening. And thank you for the gift of your time. Oh, we're out of time for this segment. We'll end with this one and start a new segment for key concept number 10. Scholar Annette Gordon. As I
4: worked on the is of Monticello, I've had to rely pretty much on Jefferson's records, and that's always a tricky business because Jefferson is enslaving people. He has a particular attitude about them, so you have to read the evidence with that in mind. Jefferson kept a record of his farm operations. Slavery was a business, so you had to keep track of your inventory, and that would be human beings in this situation. The kinds of things that he was giving out to them, clothing, food, family relations, all those kinds of things he kept in the farm book. The first time I saw pages from the farm book was when I was a teenager. And when I started working on my first book, I went to give a talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And I was allowed to actually hold it and go through the farm book. And it was just amazing to see it and to hold it because this is a document that I've been looking at in facsimile form for all these years. On the other hand, when I started reading it and you see the hand, the handwriting, which is a very neat handwriting, putting down the story of the lives of people that he's enslaving it was just powerful i felt myself almost overcome because then you really see the people and you think to yourself here's a guy who has this level of power over individuals and he thinks he's being a good guy and he is seeing himself clearly as i'm the benevolent great white father mm-hmm. here's all the things that i'm doing for my people mm-hmm. and i'm looking at it and thinking about the people and it's saying, you know, why do we have to be here, right? The people that he's listing, they're carpenters, they're, they know how to farm, they are blacksmiths, ironworkers, all of these people, they can't just pick up and leave and say, I don't want to be a part of this book. When I started to think about writing the Hemmings as a Monticello, that it was important for me to take those people who ran the farm book and try to make them live as much as I could, whatever capacity I had as a writer and as a researcher to make these people come alive, not just to be pages in Jefferson's farm book. I wanted to sort of bring out their understanding of their lives. So it's a tough thing to see people's lives through the eyes of the people who are holding them in bondage. And so what you have to do in this situation when you're dealing with people who are not producing lots of records or who are telling family stories, is that you have to look around it to see the kinds of ways in which it can be corroborated. In some ways, written documents are superior, but people can say things that aren't true in documents. Just because it's written down, it doesn't make it the truth. You have to go through the same process of corroboration, looking for things outside of the document to support what's inside of the document. You can't invent things that are not there, but there's more there than we think. I would say comb libraries, look at endnotes from historical books, footnotes are full of hints and things that you could look at maybe for further study. The other thing to keep in mind is that don't be afraid to identify with enslaved people. Don't be afraid to think of them as anything other than human beings and to trust your own instincts about the material that you're reading. Trust your own instincts about how a human being would act or feel in a particular circumstance. There's a famous saying that the past is a foreign country, but it's not a different planet. I mean, there are some commonalities in the human existence that are just there. It's because of who we are. We're born, we live a certain time, and we die. We have a heart, we have a brain, we have much in common. And don't be afraid to think of the things that you have in common with people who lived a long time ago but were human beings and had values and hopes and fears the same as we all do.
2: offer the they offer the newsletter and now they're flashing so much more across the screen it's just just a treasure trove a new film on the history of indigenous enslavement and black lives matter teaching about race racism and police Violence! Oh, um, the moment confronting white nationalism. After the president of the United States refused to denounce white supremacy, and they're talking about the current president of the United States refused to denounce white. Supremacy at Tuesday night's debate just one week ago. Some leaders of white nationalist groups publicly anticipated a spike in new recruits. We hope these resources will help you recognize and confront white nationalism and radicalization. If you see it in your students, they offer teaching materials and posters and newsletters and just so much information here on tolerance.org. New Resources for Confronting White Nationalism by Western States Center. There's another article, What is the Alt-Right? White Nationalism has come out of the basement. Or if I can translate that, It's come out of the gutter. Yes, I'll use the G word. It's come out of the gutter and enter the mainstream. And I'll translate that and enter the White House. Would you recognize it if it came to your classroom? Yes, I'm in so-called progressive California And I deal with it right where I live. Sometimes just toe to toe, but we won't go there. (laughs) Because you all know me. (laughs) I'll tell it raw like Tiger 180 of the Do Better, the Do Better show on Anchor and all the other streaming platforms. Um, me and Tiger will tell it raw (laughs) as you all already know the next article they offer is called Hate at School, the hierarchy of hate in school whether looking at news media reports or reading educator stories it's clear that hate And bias are national not regional issues we saw both media and educator reports from all 50 states and Washington DC in 2018 oh my and if you click on each one of these you get more and more teaching materials And they offered you to view, discuss and share the moment. Never miss a moment. Subscribe, share and see past moments using these options. Sign up for updates. Share this moment. Visit the archive. You can click on each one of those. Future voters. Future voters. Project, check out the Future Voters Project, and join us as we work toward our goal of registering all eligible students by the time they graduate high school. Oh yeah, that's a good group. I saw Michelle Obama and Conan. I did a Zoom bomb. (laughs) I thus posted on this on this podcast uh Conan, O'Brien and Michelle Zoom Bomb, the Future Voters Project. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's oh just more and more and more options to click on race and ethnicity, religion, ability, class immigration, gender and sexual identity, bullying and bias, rights and activism. And they have something called the Teaching Tolerance Newsletter. You just leave your email and click, I am in. Subscribe for free, Teaching Tolerance Magazine. And this is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they are the best, (laughs) absolutely the best for decades and decades. They have been tracking countrywide or maybe even internationally all these topics, all the hate crimes, and they're... A group of researchers, attorneys, and other people that have just committed and dedicated their lives to the uh, freedom, freedom, and justice and equality movement. So, this is why we're having our discussion teach-in and teaching, uh, and we're learning together what this is all about at tolerance.org T-O-L-E-R A-N-C-E dot O-R-G Teaching Tolerance website. Thank you guys so much for your support. Thank you for listening, supporting the podcast and the show as we learn this new skill of podcasting. We learn so much about what's going on in the world or how we arrived at certain places in the world. Be well and thrive. Stay safe. Take care.